0: Y'all, you're listening to In the Corner back by the wood pile. I'm a spun counter guy. Thanks for stopping by. As a constant consumer of history, after a while, it's difficult not to see patterns, and so I felt compelled to write a little essay in the form of a satirical orientation about one particular pattern I picked up on. If you have any thoughts, pro or against my stance, send me an email, which is given out at the end of today's episode. And my apologies to all of the folks whose names I may mispronounce. Though when we put things in perspective, considering that most of the people in the story either were murdered we're doing the murdering, or both, the crimes in my tongue don't seem all that heinous. Revolution Orientation, Day One. So you've joined the revolution. Welcome and congratulations, comrade. You're now part of an energetic army of youthful radicals who will change human history forever by finally ridding the world of fascist, racist, and poverty, mostly by holding up the traffic of capitalists trying to get to their jobs of stealing from the poor. You'll also get to smash the windows of buildings constructed by the efforts of the manual labor class with minimal interference from law enforcement. And depending on how dedicated you are or how good you look in black, your image may even end up becoming an icon on a protest sign, a t-shirt, or flyer. We on the hard left really do have the coolest looking flyers, While with your dedicated efforts you'll be facilitating glorious change, we should warn you that there are some risks associated by joining our mob, I mean movement, much how some professions have a high turnover rate. Being a leftist revolutionary has a, well how should I put this, an exceptionally high fatality rate. Now I'm not just talking about the death that could come from the fascist fists of counter protesters or the bullets and billy clubs of racist shock troops. I'm talking about the skull-shattering bullets that very likely will come from us, your new revolutionary friends. History can give us a little preview. Take, for example, Che Guevara. You probably have several t-shirts with this guy's face on it that you paid 30 bucks for at some running dog capitalist website claiming to be stocked with all your revolutionary fashion needs. But in case you're not entirely sure who this hairy face on your chest is, Guevara was an original leader of the 16th of July movement that deposed the Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista and replaced him with their own dictator, Fidel Castro. Che claimed he had come to communism because of his Soviet hero, Joseph Stalin, and at times even signed his name, Stalin too. So it may not be all that surprising that the commandant oversaw the persecution of hundreds of counter-revolutionaries, including the imprisonment of those whose only crime was being homosexual, and the execution of a 14-year-old boy. Not one to make all the grunts get their hands dirty, Che was famous for putting... Enemies of the state against the wall and shooting them himself during and after his lifetime, the Cuban state media loved using El comandante's image and name to promote itself and hence the man became very popular among communists, both domestic and abroad. Our limousine left us band of choice, rage against the machine, even his claim that che was an honorary fifth member. Guevara was so popular in fact that his star often outshone his boss, Fidel Castro. And so it may be for this reason that many historians believe Fidel sent Che on a doomed, undermanned, and outgunned mission to foment revolution in Bolivia, of which he would not survive. If bullet holes were Judas' kisses, Fidel put his loving lip on about every inch of Guevara's body. But you may counter-argue that, no, Fidel is an honorable guy who just had so much faith in Che that he was sure that the miracle of revolution in the midst of great odds, which occurred in Cuba, could be repeated in Bolivia. Well then, consider General Arnando Ochoa Sanchez. He was another original member of the 26th of July movement, fighting alongside Che, Fidel, and Fidel's brother, Raul. After the communist takeover in 1959... Ochoa became a member of the Cuba's Communist Party Central Committee, had major military roles in repelling the CIA-assisted Bay of Pigs invasion, led Nicaraguan Sandinista troops against the U.S.-backed Contras, trained Marxist rebels in the Congo, worked with the Soviets to foment revolutions in Ethiopia, and led Cuban forces against South Africa's apartheid government troops in Angola. By the mid-1980s, the general had become the third most powerful man in Cuba, just behind Fidel and Raul. With bona fides like his, Rage Against the Machine would surely have given Ochoa at least the honorary position of guitar tech on their cash-grabbing world tours. But as the 1980s came to a close, Sanchez found himself on the outs with the Dictorial Brothers, Raul in June of 1989, ranting for around two hours on Cuban TV and radio about how much he now hated his former friend. And what was Sanchez's crime? Same as Che's, it seems. The general was incredibly popular in Cuba, especially among those troops who served under him. Quickly, Ochoa found himself the subject of accusations that he had used Cuban military resources to assist drug runners in South America. The irony was that it was actually the Castro brothers, along with Panama's Manuel Noriega, who were committing the trafficking in question. Ochoa, it seems, was used by his former comrades to deflect blame off themselves from the mounting international investigations that would ultimately lead to Noriega's downfall and U.S. back removal. General Sanchez was shot by a firing squad on July of 1989, betrayed by the revolution he helped put in power. And if somehow you can find a way to spin the story to the Castro's credit, Guevara and Ochoa's fates weren't really that unique in the drama that is Cuba's communist history. Fidel and Raul were notorious for every so often cleaning house by accusing some of the most loyal officers in their inner circle as traitors to the revolution and having them either imprisoned or shot. Just look up the fates of Camilo Sinfuegos, Carlos Aldana, Roberto Rubenia and Ricardo Alarcon and there's many more body bags than that floating behind the Castro's wake well that was just an example of one bad communist family business you might argue okay then let's go over to the former Soviet Union and meet Leon Trotsky Sergei Kirov Nikolai Bukharin, and Joseph Stalin Sergei Kirov was arrested three times by the Tsarist government for his attempts to usher in revolution in Russia, and after the final success of the Bolsheviks' October Revolution, Kirov served as a valiant commander in the Russian Civil War, defeating those opposed to the new communist order. In the true anarchist socialist spirit, Kirov even ordered a man attempting to hide his own furniture from the new government to be shot. Nikolai Bakharin, had also been arrested by the Tsarist government for his involvement in communist activities and forced into exile. Shortly after this, Bukharin wrote a book called Imperialism and World Economy, which greatly influenced Vladimir Lenin the latter even writing an introduction for the work. Bukharin would next help a relatively unknown named Joseph Stalin write a pamphlet called Marxism and the National Question, which gave the future Man of Steel a boost in notoriety and respect within leftist circles. Bukharin next relocated to America to edit a newspaper for Russian leftist immigrants and was even on the docks of New York City to greet and embrace Leon Trotsky upon his arrival there. After the October Revolution, Bukharin returned to his homeland and eventually would become the editor of the Bolshevik newspaper Pravda. Leon Trotsky was arrested and sent to Siberia twice for his revolutionary activities by the Russian regime, only to escape both times, once while hiding in a wagon full of hay, while in exile in London, Trotsky edited a leftist newspaper and became acquainted with Vladimir Lenin. The two men both were dedicated to bringing Marxism to Russia, but disagreed how exactly the new nation would operate. Still, Trotsky would return to Russia in time to play a major role in the October Revolution. Under Lenin's leadership, Trotsky became commissar of the army and navy, and also led the Red Army to its victory in the Russian Civil War. He explaining one aspect of his leadership philosophy, quote, An army cannot be built without reprisals. Masses of men cannot be led to death unless the army command has the death penalty in its arsenal. So long as those malicious tailless apes are so proud of their technical achievements, the animals that we call men, will build armies and wage wars. The command will always be obliged to place the soldier between the possible death in the front and the inevitable one in the rear, unquote. In spite of Trotsky's military accomplishments, criticism of his leadership began, it seems, by the direction of a jealous, plotting Joseph Stalin. After Vladimir Lenin's death, Trotsky became one of the major contenders to continue the former revolutionaries' leadership of the Soviet Union and chief obstacle of Stalin's desire to fill the post with himself. With Joseph Stalin ultimately achieving control of the nation, poor Leon Trotsky had to flee for his life from the very land where he helped usher in a worker's paradise. You'd think that Trotsky would have been safely out of Stalin's reach in Mexico City, but the dedicated Marxist last moments were occupied by contrary thoughts, particularly given that an ice axe wielded by a Stalinist NKVD agent was penetrating his skull. Leon Trotsky who worked so hard for the revolution, died a day later from the violent attack. Now, in that leadership vacancy left by the death of Vladimir Lenin, both Kirov and Bukharin had supported Stalin as his heir, which you would have thought would have kept their heads from being punctured by metal objects on orders of the butcher of Moscow. Well, with Kirov, at least, this astute man was gaining a popularity among the inner Soviet circles that was beginning to rival Uncle Joe. And so his friend Stalin ordered NKVD director Yenrik Yagoda to pull Kirov's bodyguards, which allowed an assassin, also reportedly recruited by the NKDV, to put a bullet into the man's neck. Kirov died, which was followed by at least one of the guards who had been taken off the Kirov detail to be arrested by the NKDV, and subsequently died of an accident the very next day by supposedly falling off a truck. The guard's wife was even committed to an insane asylum. Kirov's assassin was captured and was said to have been personally interrogated by Joseph Stalin himself, where it was apparently learned that the shooter was one cog in a giant conspiracy, which in short gave the Soviet leader the pretext to launch his Great Purge, which led to the execution of some 700,000 largely loyal revolutionaries, including the NKVD director Yingrik Yagoda and Nikolai Bukharin. So now you might admit that, yeah, Castro and Stalin were bad apples, but they historically were only two in an otherwise good barrel of redness. Maybe it was because they were white, and if critical race theory is true, then white people just don't do anything without oppressing. Well, then let's sail over to China and meet Peng Dehua, Liu Xiaqi, Zhou Enlai, and Mao Zedong. All four of these guys were instrumental to overthrowing the nationalist government in China and installing a Marxist regime in 1949. But while Liu Shaoqi, Zhou Enlai, and Mao Zedong came from comfortable landowning bourgeois family backgrounds and were educated, Peng Dehua was pretty much the kind of person the other three claimed to be fighting for, poor and uneducated. Peng Dehua had to quit school at the age of 10 to get a job, and after joining the nationalist army, rose quickly among the ranks. In time, though, Peng Hua embraced communism and joined the party of Mao and company, this convert becoming part of the red military leadership, even reportedly saved Mao's life once. But Peng Hua had the fatal trait of reporting what was right in front of his eyes, and so when Mao Zedong's collectivist policies caused the largest man-made famine in human history, at least 38 million Chinese starving to death, the marshal stood up at a conference in Lushan and proclaimed what everyone else was afraid to say, Not only had Mao's policies caused massive suffering and death for their people, but the chairman was living worse than a capitalist, having private homes all over the country, forcing people to worship him like a god via his personality cult, ingratiating himself in all the pleasures, including large meals, that he denied to the rest of the nation, and having implemented an unofficial program for selecting imperial concubines, in other words, forcing Chinese girls to be his sex slaves. To his credit, Liu Shaoqi also spoke out, though in a more nuanced way. Liu admitted that Mao's leadership of the country, while well-meaning, had not been successful, and so Liu began to use his authority to roll back most of these disastrous policies. Zhou Enlai also questioned the chairman's leadership, but was even more reserved about pointing out Mao's worst traits. Well, Mao never forgot a slight. And so during the Cultural Revolution a few years later, Mao's program for purifying the Communist Party by expelling all who was not completely loyal to him, Peng Dehua was arrested by Mao's Red Guards, publicly ridiculed, tortured, and sentenced to prison, where he died after a few short years. Liu Xiaoqi also found himself denounced as a traitor and enemy agent, he dying after a few miserable years in prison. Zhou Enlai fared better than the rest He living nearly as long as Mao, but the chairman still exacting his final revenge when he forbade doctors from treating Joe's bladder cancer. Even President Richard Nixon's right-hand man, Henry Kissinger, offered medical treatment from American doctors for Joe, only to have Mao reject this gesture as well. Joe and Lai died from a painful affliction that could have been easily treated. You still might think, nah, this won't happen with the group I've joined. We're unified, and no one is held higher than another. Possibly, but you soon will notice that your chosen team is probably working with other organizations that don't agree on all points of doctrine, but can agree on who the chief enemy is. For example, if you're currently in Antifa, you've probably observed them working with Black Lives Matter, the John Brown Gun Club, or Redneck Revolt. If you're part of Black Lives Matter, in addition to Antifa, you might have noticed that China's communist government was assisting and coordinating with the organization in spite of the CCP's unapologetic mistreatment of people of color within their own borders. If you were in the Occupy Wall Street movement, you would have seen fellow leftist allies like the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Democracy Now!, or Extinction Rebellion there, either as guests or party crashers at your protests. And so, whatever your revolutionary group of choice is, they will often coordinate their various actions and strategies with other like-minded organizations to reach some of their shared goals. This approach was used during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s where Stalinists, Trotskyites, Marxists, anarchists, labor unions, and other leftist groups from all over the world poured in to fight Francisco Franco's nationalist rule. This included such prominent American lefties as Ernest Hemingway, Langston Hughes, and Dorothy Parker. But there was one British soldier there of the Trotskyite Persuasion, also known as the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, or POUM, and he became quite shocked when, after the leftist coalition liberated the city of Barcelona from the nationalists, these various groups of allies began to turn on each other. The British soldier asked at one point in his confusion, aren't we all socialists? Some were apparently more socialist than others because, as the soldier later wrote on June 15, 1936, quote, The Stalinist police raided the Hotel Falcon and arrested the people in it, mostly militiamen on leave. The place was converted immediately into a prison. Next day, the POUM was declared an illegal organization, and all of its offices, bookstalls, sanatoria, red aid centers, and so forth were seized. Meanwhile, the police were arresting everyone they could lay hands on who was known to have any connection with the POUM. Within a day or two, almost all of the 40 members of the executive committee were in prison. Possibly one or two had escaped into hiding, but the police were adopting the trick of seizing a man's wife as a hostage if he disappeared. In some cases, the police had even gone to the length of dragging wounded militia men out of hospitals. They were even arresting children, unquote. This soldier and his wife luckily managed to escape Spain and returned to England quite alarmed at what some of his comrades were capable of, so much so that this British soldier began to write what seemed like a children's book about animals on a farm who overthrow the cruel farmer to set up a new order where, quote, all animals are equal, unquote. Eventually, though, some of the animals began exploiting and murdering the other animals and grant themselves special treatment. This privilege is justified when the previous law on animal equality is changed to, quote, but some animals are more equal than others, unquote. The soldier, George Orwell was his name, would publish his book Animal Farm as a warning to particularly those among his own political side of the aisle that they best watch their backs. And Spain was not an exception to the rule of groups on the left sometimes working together before turning on each other. Post-World War I Germany was littered with leftist groups ranging from the German Communist Party to the National Socialist Party. These two groups in particular did work with each other to undermine the ruling Social Democrats, but also, at other times, tried to take each other out. Some historians have pointed out that if the German Communist Party had not spent so much energy causing trouble for the Social Democrats, a leftist party themselves with similar aims, that the National Socialists, a.k.a. the Nazis, never would have gained control of the German government. The Nazis' rule would plunge the planet into a second world war, not to mention one of the worst mass murders in human history, the Holocaust. Though this next example didn't have The same deadly results, it does illustrate the Machiavellian nature of many modern progressive groups and their disregard for like-minded rival groups. During the height of the Occupy Wall Street protest in America, in San Francisco, labor union activists, including the United Auto Workers, waved a mob of marching Occupy activists into a Bank of America. As the protesters entrenched themselves, the union organizers extracted themselves which was followed by the police moving in and arresting nearly 100 people, none of which were union members. Of course, I'm sure, once they ever got control of a nation, then they'd institute brotherhood and equality and all that stuff. No all no all no all Still, you may counter that your particular revolutionary beliefs are that of anarchism, which avoids many of these previously mentioned pitfalls by keeping to smaller governing bodies, as opposed to whole nations or groups trying to get a hold of a country. But even within scaled-down leftist organizations, the same terrors often persist. For example, the Black Panthers. This organization formed in Oakland, California, in the mid-1960s, and was based on the quasi-Marxist ideas that property was theft and that the thief was a revolutionary hero. Founded by Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton, the Black Panthers on its face instituted the seemingly traditional American values of armed self-defense among African Americans, the monitoring of police activity for abuse of power and brutality, and in time would create its famous free breakfast program to feed poor children. But these organizers were also great admirers of Chinese communism, members selling Mao's Little Red Book of quotations in their neighborhoods. Eventually, prominent leaders Newton and Elaine Brown would be invited to China, where they met with and were encouraged by Zhou Enlai and others among the CCP. Fittingly, in what must sound like a broken record at this point, the party split into factional lines around the egos of Newton, Seal, and another prominent leader, Eldridge Cleaver, and violence soon followed. While Cleaver often preached his redemptive message that racists could change their hearts, he still led a group of Panthers to ambush police following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., which ended with the only death being that of a fellow Panther named Bobby Hutton. Huey Newton, in addition to creating a personality cult around himself, and taking the title Servant of the People, formed his own police force, much in the style of the Gestapo or NKDV slash KGB, which kept Panther members in line via employing beatings with whips, chains, and by other horrific means. This private police force was called the Squad. Female Panthers were expected to give into the sexual demands of the party leadership, which the Squad enforced. But the squad would reach beyond employing fear, pain, and rape and get into the business of death. When the vice president of the Grove Street College Black Student Union disrespected one of the squad members, the leader was executed. Many Panthers, who were suspected of disloyalty or betrayal, would breathe their last breaths in the Santa Cruz Mountains, known as the party's killing grounds. But Newton's squad wasn't the only murderous segment. The New Haven, Connecticut chapter of the Black Panthers tied up party member Alex Rackley, and poured boiling water on him until he confessed his crimes against the party. For two days, Rackley was kept tied to a bed, laying in his own waist, until finally he was shot in the head, as reportedly ordered by Bobby Seal, and dumped into the Cochinchuang River. Bobby Seal himself would eventually get expelled from the party, was violently beaten by Newton personally, and received additional death threats by other members until he finally disappeared many not sure whether he had went into hiding or had been made to disappear. When Huey Newton was accused by the police of murdering an 18-year-old prostitute and pistol-whipping his personal tailor, the servant of the people fled into the refuge of Fidel Castro's Cuba. The Black Panthers then became helmed by Elaine Brown, after which you would think that conditions might improve for females in the organization. Well, not for Betty Van Patter, at least. A white bookkeeper for the Panthers, whose body was found in the San Francisco Bay, her head caved in. Squad members later reported that Brown gave the execution orders. <laughs> Even if we consider the worst stages of the French Revolution as one of the earliest leftist attempts at governing others, the tendency towards fratricide was present even in the 1700s. Though the initial push for change in France was towards the direction of increasing the liberty and rights of individuals and limiting the reach of the monarchy, factions of the revolution took a fatal turn when their quest for justice began to trump the very rights and protections. That the revolution had so nobly stood for. If those accused of anti-revolutionary activities or speech even got a trial, the duration could be as quick as 20 seconds. The period known as the Terror, was of such a totalitarian nature, that historians would later refer to it as a dress rehearsal for the communistic great purges, cultural revolutions, and killing fields of the 20th century. To give us a successionary example, one of the central agents for revolutionary change was Louis Philip II, the Duke of Orléans, who voted to have Francis King, his own cousin, executed for treason which more or less amounted to using his legal powers to resist some of the revolutionaries' demands. The king was decapitated via the guillotine in January of 1793, and his wife, Marie Antoinette, also met the same fate in October of that same year. The Duke of Orléans would find himself arrested merely because his son was suspected as being a traitor, an accusation never proven, keep in mind and a month after Marie Antoinette, the man who had voted to have her husband murdered, found his own head on the chopping block. The Duke's execution was orchestrated in large part thanks to a fellow Jacobin radical named Maximilien Robespierre, a man who declared, quote, true religion consists in punishing for the happiness of all those who disturb society, unquote. Well, and you've got to know how the song goes at this point, in July of 1794, Robespierre anticipated his own arrest by fellow revolutionaries and so attempted to shoot himself. He was only successful in blowing off the bottom part of his jaw and was soon captured. So with his jaw held onto his head with bandages, Robespierre was tried, convicted of counter-revolutionary activity, and dragged through the streets of Paris for three hours while citizens cursed and screamed at him. Finally, the man that had sentenced so many to their deaths had his own head removed. Don't you know? talking about a so you may ask, why are your new friends so prone to self-sabotage at their best, cannibalistic at their worst? Well, I'm going to offer up a few possible maybes to this conundrum, But I'm not the best philosophical thinker or writer, so take what I say with a grain of salt that fell off a cracker and onto a floor. Maybe, after you spend some time in whatever movement you've signed up for, you can offer up your own observations, providing you don't end up falling off a truck or something. First of all, Marxism, Socialism, Communism, Anarchism, whatever you want to call it, creates a structure where an incredible amount of power over large amounts of people is put into the hands of a few. Governments with limits, checks, and balances are viewed by the left as ineffective and chaotic. Individuals, be they owners of their own businesses or parents wanting to raise their own children, are not to be trusted and should be told what to do and how to do it for the greater good. Of course, this cynicism towards the individual is not directed at these leftists who want to be in charge. By magic, perhaps, the self-anointed messiahs will not own any of these gross traits, such as greed, incompetence, arrogance, etc., that cause other individuals to be so destructive towards their fellow man. So when centralized control of every aspect of society is the solution, no action or decision is too minute to not have someone that you've never met and far away make that decision for you. And thus, several things happen here, and we'll have to skip over the gargantuan amounts of inefficiency and waste a top-down ram bureaucracy creates for a nation. First of all, it attracts the worst kinds of people. You exclude it, of course. Think about the last job you had, if you've ever had one. Surely you must have witnessed the kinds of people who do everything in their power, ethical or not, to get a promotion or to take home more money. Imagine if the boss of your company gathered everyone in a room, threw a glove, we'll say, onto the conference table, and declared that whoever managed to put the glove on first would have total control over the company's finances, total control of who got hired and fired, and so on. I bet you know exactly which one of your co-workers would pounce on that glove like a dog on a cat with bacon strapped to its head. Now, imagine your company is a country where whoever donned the glove had total control of the nation's resources, had total control over the people's property and actions, and got to decide who lived or died. Now, many of the people who would try to get the glove, they would claim that They would wield its powers to make things better for everyone. But even if you found that one uncorruptible person to rule over everyone, he would soon be taken out by a jealous rival who would pin the assassination on another rival, that rival's wife, and that rival's wife's dog because power is that intoxicating. The prospect of having control over everything and everybody can make people even more crazy aggressive than the desire for sex or drugs, especially considering that if your power becomes absolute, You'll get all the drugs and sex you could ever want. Although, with the sex, it would be a little on the rapey side. This is why true democratic republics, as flawed as they are, tend to be more prosperous, stable, and self-correcting than any ten socialist dictatorships you could find. To become a leader of a democratic republic, you first have to convince voters that you're competent, have their best interests in mind, and so on garnering a majority of the people's approval can serve as a check against a person who just wants first dibs on everyone's piece of the pie. Read that how you will. In America, of course, we've had our share of greedy bumblers that managed to fool enough people to allow them into the White House, but because republics have both separation of and limited powers, even the worst presidents can only do so much damage. Collectivist governments, on the other hand, have few if no elections and little, if no other, obstacles to such pernicious men. One argument in which some on the left may admit the moral failures of some progressives is that, well, there are always going to be opportunist or just flawed individuals that get involved in any endeavor. After all, hasn't there been plenty of people calling themselves Christians or Buddhists or conservatives or any other belief system that still end up committing a multitude of crimes ranging from racism to murder? Very true. But one difference would be that with most religious and legal systems, there is the assertion that certain actions are always wrong and never justified. With even the worst put-together democratic governments, you can appeal to their laws for protection or avenues of justice. Though one may not always get the desired result, you'd be surprised how often it's occurred in nations with limited governments. If the culture or nation is built on a religious foundation, you can appeal to their scriptures or traditions to rein in the worst actions of its leaders. In America, both its legal system and the appeal to its religious heritage were key to eroding the institution of slavery. The year after the nation's founding in 1776, the state of Vermont abolished slavery, with seven other states enacting similar prohibitions by 1804. Many of the arguments made in favor of this legislation was religious in nature. In 1781, Elizabeth Freeman used the legal system in Massachusetts to sue for her freedom and was granted it. The abolitionist movement used everything from the printing press to the pulpit to business ventures to attain freedom for slaves. But within the atheistic religion of leftism, the only law or scripture you can possibly appeal to is the writings of Karl Marx. And with this man's ideology, there's little moral law that restrains his vision from being implemented. If progressivism has a golden rule, it is this, the ends always justify the means. Now, there are some major moral planks in Karl's writings that all the murderous monsters I've mentioned ignored and could have been called out on. Trouble is, the right to free speech or political speech, if it is ever allowed in Marxist societies, ends up becoming used at your trial. Take, for example, in China, Chairman Mao instigated the 100 Flowers campaign where he invited criticism of his government, supposedly in order to purify it. Thus claimed the chairman, quote, The policy of letting a hundred flowers bloom and a hundred schools of thought contend is designated to promote the flourishing of the arts and the progress of science. Unquote. Well, come to find out, this was just a ploy to bring to the light all of his critics, whom he in time would punish many with death. In all the Marxist societies thus far, if they ever put forth a kind of Bill of Rights, usually if a citizen appeals to it, they get put on trial for some made-up crime or just disappear. In Cuba, within the constitution the Communist Party created there was a provision that the people could create a law if at least 10,000 citizens voted for the measure. Keep in mind, the party hasn't even allowed any elections since they took over, even though they had insisted suffrage was coming. And so a private citizen named Osvaldo Paya collected well over the required amount of signatures in order to compel votes for freedom of religion, speech, press, elections, and business. The Castros kindly responded to this popular appeal to their own measure by murdering Paya. The harsh truth is, within collectivist governing, there's not even a sense that you own your own body, especially if it gets in the way of progress. So says the left's bearer of scripture, Mr. Marx, quote, There is only one way in which the murderous death agonies of the old society and the bloody birth throes of the new society can be shortened, simplified, and concentrated, and that way is revolutionary terror. Thus, devout Marxists actually have the green light to terrorize, torture, and murder to reach the end goal. And we have to remember that Marx claimed that the theories of Charles Darwin were more or less the final piece to his philosophical puzzle. And in Darwin's view, as with many atheists, humans were mere animals. If that's the case, we're all just talking meat whose subjugation or elimination for the good of the hive is no injustice. Thus, where you have, in many democracies, some kind of base concept that all men are equal, with rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you have Chairman Mao proclaiming that, quote, half of China may well have to die, unquote, in order to make his dreams of socialism a reality. In the end, Mao didn't kill half the population, but he came pretty close, dismissing others' concerns with the assertion that death, quote, is indeed to be rejoiced over. We can't not be in favor of death, unquote. In the United States, the practice of slavery was an utter failure to live up to the rights proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence, and most Americans knew this. When efforts to abolish slavery began to grow, the slave masters had to dismiss or belittle blacks' humanity by portraying them as incompetent and childlike to justify keeping them as property. Hitler had to dehumanize Jews, Poles, Catholics, capitalists, the handicapped, gypsies, and others by arguing that they were rats, parasites, or vampires. This all to justify defeaters initially denying them any rights, next using them as slave labor, and ultimately exterminating them. Leftist ideology must also remove what Jews and Christians view as the image of God present in all humans in order to remove the stigma of violating their rights in order to remake the world. Former American leftist David Horowitz put it brilliantly when he wrote, Lenin had called his opponents insects that the revolution must exterminate, if you were merely a peasant and got in the way of the revolution, your life was flattened into a single abstraction as in "quote the achievement of socialism requires the liquidation of the kulak" unquote. The particular individual with distinctive features simply disappeared. Stalin's innovation was to make these condemned souls unpersons even before their deaths. Even heroes of the revolution were not immune. You could be as famous as Trotsky and it would count for nothing when the revolution turned against you. Not only would Stalin kill you to the applause of the people, but it would be as if you had never existed. Your achievements would be removed from the historical record, and even your image would be erased from the photographic memory of the time. When social justice was complete, there would be nothing left of you at all, Unquote. And this kind of dehumanizing continues among modern progressives today, often labeling political opponents as mere fascists, racists, pigs, or Nazis, even if the individuals are none of these things. The target being identified, this next justifies the harassment, doxing, canceling, and violence that might befall them. Yusra K. Ali is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Toronto, and has been championed and defended by the Huffington Post in spite of repeatedly teaching that, quote, white skin is subhuman, unquote, and that whites are, quote, genetically deficient, unquote. To the followers of Ali, this pretty much gives the green light to reviving the programs of euthanasia attempted by progressives of the early 20th century. In 2020, a Portland, Oregon conservative activist named Aaron Danielson was shot and killed by an Antifa Black Lives Matter activist, Michael Reinhol. The first response from the said organizations was to dismiss the former's right to exist. As activists gathered outside the federal courthouse in the city, one organizer barked from a bullhorn, quote, our community held its own and took out the trash. I'm not even going to shed any tears over a Nazi, unquote. Danielson was not a Nazi, but even so, the crowd celebrated his death by cheering and dancing. And this kind of language is common among progressive literature and websites. Many critics argue that with critical race theories, stated attempts at trying to right old wrongs, its creation of a hierarchy of races, genders, sexuality, dictating who should be heard and who should be silenced again devalues certain individuals because of characteristics that they often have absolutely no power over. Some lives matter more than others. If you go carrying pictures of chairman, Of course, some of what I've written was done in jest, but with the serious point being that with the aim of trying to better the world, depending on how you go about it, you might end up making the world worse and also might get yourself killed. But of course, when we see injustices of the world, our response shouldn't be just shrugging our shoulders, going off to get drunk, and playing video games. But considering everything we've just heard, what can we do? Well, there's plenty of options, but I'm just going to offer a few partly because I don't have that many original thoughts and I'm a bit lazy and I would like this essay to wrap itself up soon so I can go do something more fun like kiss on my wife's neck and see where that leads. Some say that the key in making a more perfect society first lies in starting with ourselves. If you're demanding perfection from others, are you yourself perfect? Probably not. And often, the flaws of others that set us off does so because we subconsciously know that we are guilty of the same things. So, you might want to do what Confucius called cultivating the self. In one way, would be personalizing or empathizing with your fellow humans, especially the glaringly flawed. If you perceive someone hates another human being because of skin color, social class, sexual preference, or whatever, look at yourself admit the possibility that you might also despise others for your own particular reasons. You may not hate a guy because he's black or gay, but you might hate a guy because he's white, straight, and a guy. You may not hate a guy because he is Vietnamese, gay, and a journalist, but still might hate him because he insists on having his own mind that is different from yours, and he films all your friends displaying their flaws with baseball bats and Molotov cocktails. A fellow matching that description named Andy No comes to mind you still might counter this line of thinking with, well, my hate is justified. That guy needs to be destroyed because he fill in the blank. Well, guess what? Everyone who acts however badly does so with the understanding that they are justified. Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Genghis Khan, Pol Pot, you name the villain, all justified their actions. So, if you can admit that you, me, everyone, has the same evil that all these famous bad guys did, then you can begin to understand the problem of humanity. And then you can begin to work out your own prejudices, envy, selfishness, etc., which might help you help the other humans you currently see as enemies that need to be destroyed. Some say that one shouldn't bellyache about other people's messy rooms until one has completely scraped all of their own dirty underwear off of their own ceiling. Well, I can tell you that with my own life now more than halfway over, While I feel like I'm a better human being than I was 20 years ago, I've still got shortcomings aplenty. And if I waited till I totally got all my ducks in a row before I attempted to help others, I would still be lying in bed. So do act, but I would suggest acting in the world around you. If, for example, you're enraged about the problem of homelessness, instead of wasting a day protesting the problem by burning down buildings, build a building for those you're protesting for. Yes, you may not be able to afford to raise an entire building, but you could hold off on that next tattoo, vinyl record, or six-pack of craft beer and buy a tent for a hobo, split a can of Spam with him, and get to know a story. From here, move out. If you believe in socialism, anarchism, or whatever else societal structure, buy or rent a house and declare it your own personal nation or collective. Invite roommates in with the understanding that it will be ran in the way that you see fit and see how it goes. If you believe that incarcerated drug dealers, rapists, and murderers are actually the victims in the scenario, take one or some into your autonomous abode. If you think traditional relationships and mores are oppressive, make your bed a free love anything goes zone. And don't forget to give me your address. If you believe in socialized medicine, then make everyone kick in when one of y'all have to go to the doctor to get an STD treated. The point is, whatever your beliefs are, In most free societies, no one is going to get in your way of conducting your experiments. Plus, it would be much more considerate to just live your life as you see fit, allowing like-minded comrades into your world voluntarily as opposed to forcing your will on others. And who knows, you may discover something workable for the rest of us, and even instigate the kind of revolution that folks won't wish never happened. Revolution Orientation Day 2 Here, put this blindfold on. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs)